This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Disaster Brothers, Josh and Andrew. Welcome back for another episode of Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. In 2012, Hurricane Sandy tore a wave of destruction across the United States and the Caribbean, killing 233 people and inflicting 70 billion US dollars of damage. In the US, Hurricane Sandy involved a response from all levels of government, including FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Andrew, who is joining us on the show today? On the show today, Josh, we're speaking to the former head of FEMA and advisor to President Obama, Craig Fugate. Craig's experience in disasters includes leadership roles at several US government departments after he began his career as a county emergency manager in Florida. He's been involved in countless disasters, including Hurricane Sandy and Hurricane Katrina, and has recently served as a volunteer member of President Biden's transition team. We're going to ask Craig about leading disaster response, building greater immunity to disasters, and the role of communities and the private sector during disaster response and recovery. Andrew, it's time to chat with Craig Fugate. I'm excited. Let's head to the conversation. Craig Fugate, thanks for joining us on Me, Myself and Disaster. Thanks for having me. Craig, I think one of the first things we want to start off with, you reached the pinnacle of emergency management uh, in in America. You know, you had the pleasure of serving President Obama. And I think that's something our listeners would be really keen to hear. What, What was that experience like, reaching that point in your career and serving the President of the United States? What was, you know, what were some of those things that you experienced? What was it like to work for the president when, you know, you're under pressure from states and communities to deliver during disasters? It's not much different than being an emergency manager in the states and territories or even at the local level. I mean, that's the thing I don't think people get about our profession is what you're doing at the uh, municipal level, what you're doing at the state and territorial level. Uh, is the same thing I was doing at the federal level. As people said, what's the difference between going from the state of Florida to Washington, D.C. and FEMA? I said, there's just more of them. Uh, it, it's, it's really, yeah, everybody says, what was different? I'm like, it, it was the job. I mean, I was doing what I had prepared and trained to do. So <clears throat> in, 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 in hindsight, uh, meetings that I was in with the president, uh, briefings, disasters, uh, during that, I was just doing my job. It was afterwards, I was just briefing the president or the president brought half the cabinet over to FEMA's headquarters. It was only afterwards that you really stood back and said, wow. But the reality is, uh, and this is the thing I, 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 you know, I try to explain to people, you know, what you're doing at the local level is pretty much the same thing you're doing at the national federal level. Um, it just may be a bigger scope and, and you may be dealing with a lot more simultaneous issues, but the basics stay the same. 
what would be really interesting to to hear from you is it, it's really interesting to hear that um, not much changes as you move up. But I guess the president of the United States is an extremely busy person. How do you maintain that real strategic level when you're briefing him? I know as Andrew and I have moved up, um, you know, changes around understanding what people and decision makers need to make their decisions. How did you tackle that with, you know, arguably one of the most important people in the world, staying strategic, giving um, an individual exactly what they need to make those decisions in in what is A, a highly political environment um, and B, an often a pressure cooker environment. Listening. Mm. It's amazing how much you can pick up by knowing what the issues are, what his concerns are by just listening. Uh, and it isn't just when you're in the meeting with them. It's about knowing the issues, knowing the dynamics of, uh, and that when you go in there, uh, I was never really known for being a very political person. I was usually blunt to the point, which uh, my bosses tend to appreciate. It was not something everybody appreciated. Um, and I knew my job was to tell them what they needed to know, not what they wanted to hear. Mm. And by and large, uh, both when I worked for President Obama and when I worked for Governor Jeb Bush of Florida, uh, it was it was it was more of you know, my guidance I got from them was do your job. Mm. And I didn't find myself having to go back for a lot of stuff, but during disasters and stuff, uh, generally what they wanted to know was, is there anything that you need that you're not getting? Is there anything that they need to weigh in on? Otherwise their assumption is uh, they've entrusted you with the full power of the federal government, go do good and and let them know what the uh, uh, shortfalls are. And it's interesting. I know you're on the ground um, and and managing that response to Hurricane Sandy back in 2012. Those sort of events are so big, and I imagine that the community has certain desires and needs, and, and not everything can be met. Um, how does how does how does that shape your response? Given that the U.S. government has such a huge arm of or FEMA is such a huge organisation, how do you prioritise what's really important compared to what the community might really want? Because I know that was such a huge event and everyone wanted everything. Well, it's not much different than, again, at the, at the state of Florida when we were getting hit by hurricanes. The first thing is keep people alive. Mm. Uh, address their basic needs and get the infrastructure back up, turn the power back on. Um, and you hear a lot of wants and you got to distinguish, well, what are wants versus what are needs? And I kind of break that down to is if you're alive and complaining that the ice is warm, I've done my job because uh, you're still alive. And, and the other part is FEMA is just a small part of that total response. Uh, you've got response, you know, from the local to the state. Uh, FEMA is really a support coordinating on behalf of the president and resources to the governor. And the other thing you got to accept in this business is uh, disasters are traumatic. Mm. And the way people deal with trauma is sometimes they get angry and you may be the convenient target. So the other thing I, I told people a long time ago, I learned is people are going to get angry at you. Don't personalize it. Listen to what they're saying and try to determine what is it they're really uh, angry about. And is this something that you can actually have anything to, you know, is this something you can do? Is this something you're missing? Is this something, a gap somewhere? Um, or is this a perception? And, but don't, I mean, this is this is kind of hard in our business, but, you know, when you're out there trying to help people and you're being attacked personally, uh, mm. the immediate uh, response is usually putting the shields up and get defensive. And I'm like, being angry is a way that people deal with stress. So don't personalize it. Listen to what they're saying and try to figure out what's really going on. 
And it turns out sometimes just listening and allowing people to vent and tell their stories is the first step uh, that they're going through just to deal with the trauma. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And Josh and I have been reading recently about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's really interesting to see how that correlates to basically disaster exactly. response and recovery. Mm. Think about Maslow. I mean, to getting to where people are uh, at the peak of that thing is not the disaster space. The disaster space is the very bottom. It's yep. survival. You know, and as you move up, you start seeing the disaster moving into the recovery phases. And that's where we see... Uh, a lot of of challenges in the U.S. system of the inequities of trying to help people in disasters with a recovery program that was not built uh, to address all of the issues and sometimes is selective in what assistance it can provide. Just want to shift gears now. I want to talk about something that I know you're really, really passionate about. I know it's something you pursued your, at your time right through your emergency management career and even in your private life now, it's something that, that you talk about a lot. Um, this, this notion of investing in preparedness, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an idea that's starting to, I think it's starting to, to cotton on for a lot of people understanding that if we invest up front, we can often mitigate some of those costs downstream. And if we kind of shift our focus and look a little bit longer term, rather than thinking about how do we fund the response and the recovery, actually shift that mindset and look around how do we actually fund uh, and invest in the preparedness work. But in that context, what I want to look at is firstly, what does, for you, what does resilience what does resilience mean and do you think as a society we're on the right track or do you think we're you know as societies we're leading lives that are increasingly exposed to, to these vulnerable uh, vulnerabilities and and um and i guess exposing ourselves to to more and more natural hazards well i look at resiliency and measuring people uh, most people talk about resiliency and stuff power systems infrastructure i'm like well that's nice guys but we're in the people business and the other thing I look at is the divides that are being created by investments prior to disasters and even after disasters of where and how we rebuild, uh, the tendency to leave behind the more vulnerable populations because we seem to have gravitated to making our investments based upon how much savings do we get or how much risk averse you know, you know, do we avoid and that tends to be more valuable property. And so when you're only looking at dollars, you tend to miss the big picture, which is we need to build resilient people. In fact, today, uh, and, you know, here in the United States, uh, President Biden just announced uh, he went to the hur- he went to FEMA as to, you know, getting ready for hurricane season. He's announced uh, that they're increasing their pre-disaster uh, mitigation funding. Uh, they called it building resilient infrastructure and communities to a billion U.S. dollars, which is you know, not insignificant. It's the most money we've seen in these programs. But let's go back to uh, Australia and New Zealand. One of the challenges I see in building resiliency and why we need to make investments now is think about the infrastructure in both countries. It was built for a period of weather uh, and weather patterns over 100 years that in the last 20 years is off the charts changing. Yeah. And, and, and again, here in the States, we tend to think of New Zealand and Australia, you know, uh, you know, droughts, wildfires, you know, things like that. Yet the biggest, fastest risk that's growing in Australia has been flooding. Mm. But New Zealand, which is normally one of the wettest places down there, has been seeing droughts and wildfires. Yep. And so think about infrastructure that investments community make, where people choose to live, how they choose to build uh, over 
a relatively stable period of weather to now look at how fast conditions are changing and that infrastructure isn't keeping up. And so our choice is we can either keep rebuilding after disasters and look at the floods in Victoria. I mean, the federal government in Australia had never seen this kind of impacts. And before that, you know, Australia was very much state-led, territory-led, both disaster and recovery. The federal government had a very small role to play. Yet, after we've seen these tremendous floods, increasingly, the states turned to the federal government for the funding. Now, they basically still took the approach of, we're going to run it ourselves. We just want your money. But think about how and where people have built. Look at the population growth in Australia. Where are you building? Mm. The East Coast. But where are you seeing now increased tropical activity and monsoon rains that you just don't have much of a history of? And yet the growth is growing in a very high-risk area. That was a really interesting conversation. Our last guest was Alan Kelman, a, a very prominent researcher uh, in this space, and talking about this idea of choice and talking about this idea of vulnerability and talking about disasters are really, at the end of the day, a consequence of vulnerability and choices that we make as society. And Andrew and I are only having a conversation after that episode, this really interesting thought around, and I think you've articulated it really nicely, that we've built these systems and these processes and infrastructure based on a set of norms, and those norms are now changing. We've got this gap. Um, but what I'd be really interested to, to hear from you in, in terms of your work that you've been doing um, after FEMA, is there actually a realistic way to incentivize people um, to reduce, you know, their risk? Can we actually make that affordable for everyone? Is that actually possible or is it is it a pipe dream? It's possible. Um, and again, this goes back to those that can need to uh, absorb the finances of being able to do this. And those that can't is where we should be looking at our volunteers and federal programs. Uh, but a lot of this goes back to uh, as you pointed out, decisions about where and how we built. And think about low-income housing. Uh, it's not an accident that it tends to be in areas that are more vulnerable because these were less desirable areas. Uh, the building codes weren't necessarily very strong because everybody was saying build them affordable, not survivable. Mm. Uh, and the people's incomes generally don't prepare them to go through the financial impacts of disasters. And in countries, and, and again, th- this is my observation in Australia and in New Zealand, the disasters are changing in such uh, a way that the existing structures for the government's systems weren't keeping up. So now you're starting to create, uh, you've done it on one-offs, but I think this is something that's going to be increasing is the role of the federal government providing the financial resources to help communities recover. And I, I would not be surprised to see that continue to evolve into individuals and families and small businesses, as we've seen in the states, because insurance is no longer keeping up with that risk. And for a lot of the people, they're uninsured against these risks. When you're at FEMA, did you have that challenge where, as the federal government working with states and local government to kind of, I guess, incentivize them in some way to not build in those areas that we know are yeah. vulnerable? Yeah, and this was this was one of the challenges that I saw with FEMA. I, knew, I you know, state of Florida, I would ask for uh, assistance uh, on a lot of events, and so it, it goes both ways. But what I found is, as a nation, we've set the price of risk so low. There's not much incentive for states 
in local governments to change what they're doing, because if there's a bad disaster, the federal government comes in and bails them out. And there's not any really long-term financial consequence. In fact, what we're seeing is local and state government have been shifting the insurance burden to the federal taxpayer because they have been abandoning private insurance uh, and increasing the fastest growing cost that FEMA has is responding to and rebuilding government buildings that are no longer carrying insurance. Um, speaking of Florida, and we'll come back to uh, insurance later, it's something that I'd love to delve more deeply into. But when you were the director of the Florida Emergency Management Division, um, you supported disaster response to areas worst impacted by Hurricane Katrina. And by doing that, preempting the needs of the people on the ground and deploying resources to help those communities. How do governments better anticipate the needs um, of those communities impacted by disaster and gain that situational awareness so the time is reduced between the actual impact and the time that the government can have resources on the ground and the right resources there? Well, this is the, the lesson that I learned a long time ago was speed was key. The faster I get to that decision, the better chance I have of changing that outcome. So I began stripping away everything that people said we needed before we could go. We needed assessments. We needed, you know, data. We needed to know how bad it was. I'm like, but that takes time. And I'm like, we're familiar with the, these populations. Uh, you know, we've got good GIS mapping. We got census data. We know about the populations. And, and by and large, we know about, you know, the in- types of impacts we can expect. And so I said, if we're going to speed up uh, waiting for assessments or waiting for the calls for help, we already lost a day, maybe two days. Why don't we just respond like it's bad? Well, that's not the model. The model is, you know, locals get impacted. They go to the next level. They go to the next level. Everybody's like got this pyramid. I'm like, yeah, that's the paper diagram. But in disaster, why don't you collapse it down? If And people said, well, we don't know if they're going to need it. I said, that's the key thing. If you don't know if they need it, go. Because by the time they know, it's too late. And if they didn't need you, you go home. Uh, people say, well, that's wasteful. I'm like, well, to me, the most precious commodity, most expensive is time. Every delay in making a decision means it's another day before help gets there. So when I have a hurricane coming in, uh, that's forecast. I know the intensity. I know about the location. I may not know all of the details of that impact, but I have a pretty good idea. And having more stuff than what is needed is actually our, our goal because we're not a just-in-time organization. And so I've been pushing and pushing to get faster and faster. And in fact, in Florida, uh, we were at the point where we weren't waiting until the winds died down, and we didn't tell people we're waiting for blue skies. I said, as soon as it's safe, we're going. It's going to be rainy and blowing sideways, but you're not going to get blown off the road. And so in Katrina, we had search and rescue teams in Mississippi that night. Uh, by daylight the next day, our teams were on the beaches in Mississippi uh, performing search and rescues. We couldn't have done that if we were waiting for assessments. So while well, a lot of people, like, they love their drones, they love all the toys, they love all the maps, they like building forms, they want to send teams out and go assess, I'm like, that's process. Until you got somebody on the ground that can do something to change the outcome, that's all process. So it's, just get rid of it and go. Uh, and if you're not sure, go anyway. And I, I came up with this because I was running into a lot of pushback at FEMA. So I said, I'm going to make it real simple for you. Think big, go big, go fast, be smart about it. And then they go, what the blank does that mean? I'm like, <laughs> think big. 
how many people live there that could have been impacted? Because that's your big number. We respond to people, not stuff. So what's the population? That's my, that's my bookends. Now, go big. Start getting the resources you're going to need because none of that's going to be quick. None of it's going to be, you know, easy to get hold of. And be fast about it. Quit having meetings. I, I, this is Washington, D.C. There's no decision they don't think can be improved by having another meeting. I said, stop having meetings. Stop trying to analyze this. You know how big it could be. You know about what you're going to need. Start moving it. And then the last piece is be smart about it. As information does start coming in, right-size that mission, and hopefully you're shrinking it down or you're sending everything in the first push package, and it turns out that's all you're going to need because that's going to meet the demand and you're not going to keep asking for stuff. I love the idea of their people, not stuff. And I think um, coming back to that, in terms of crowdsourcing data, how do we get better at that? Because I know there's so much out there on Twitter, on social media. We know so much and the community sends us so much information. Are we getting better at actually using that, do you think? No, government <laughs> uh, thinks that the public's uh, liability not to be trusted and will send fake news items. I'm like, no, that's government. Public's actually, I think, more trustworthy. Um it's, it's like, again, this thing I keep running into is we don't listen. I mean, think about how government treats social media. It just became another press release platform. We talk at people. But if you shut up and listen, think about how much information the public's putting out there on social media that can help fill in gaps or at least identify what may be going on. And people say, oh, there's going to be fake news. There's going to be fake images. I said, yeah, we see all of that. Um, not much different than a lot of other things. But what's interesting is at the very beginning of something, that's usually the best ground truth you're going to get. But I've heard this time and time again. It's not an official source. We can't use it. I'm like, why not? Well, we don't know if it's real or not. I'm like, well, what they're showing me matches up to what we're looking at in maps and kind of matches what we think is going on. And they're giving us more detail because the officials are so busy dealing with the immediate crisis, they don't have time to stop and send us anything. And again, I've, I got numerous examples where in the initial uh, event, the social media was more accurate than any of the official data. That's something we've got to change, I think. I don't know how it happens. I don't know how we kind of, yeah, really make the most of that. But certainly there's so much information out there and we're stupid not to use it. Quit treating the public like a liability and look at them as a resource. They're part of the team. I mean, I, again, I get government. We're, we're, we're all here to, to help everybody. But the reality is in big disasters, we're the last ones to get there. Mm. The neighbors are the ones doing most of the rescues, bystanders. Uh, and I think, you know, here in the States, we had marginalized the public to the point where uh, people actually were concerned about helping in a disaster that they'd get sued or they'd do something wrong. And, uh, and the reality is all the big ones, uh, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, it's the unorganized, non-credentialed, no incident command training, not sanctioned by government folks that are doing most of the initial rescues and taking care of each other in the first hours to days after these big disasters. But Craig, when do you think we'll finally learn that? Because I know it's something Andrew and I are extremely passionate about. And it's something that even through this podcast and through our experience of meeting people and talking about their experiences of disaster, that 
single thread follows through every single story. Andrew, Christchurch, that was the exact conversation we had with them. The first person to pull anyone out of a building wasn't anyone with any sort of technical rescue um, qualifications. It was the pharmacist next door to the doctor who pulled someone out. It was someone who um, was in their car waiting for someone out front of the building who ran across and pulled someone out from underneath the bus stop. What can, I guess, what can we do in our space to help leaders and governments get more comfortable with these ideas? Exercise and break the system. What I found and what really forced this on me was uh, after Hurricane Katrina, the federal government was providing grants to state to do catastrophic disaster planning. So I picked the great Miami hurricane back in the 1920s and updated it for today's demographics and populations. Turns out that's such a devastating hurricane that when you dumped all of our resources of the state, local governments, our federal partners, Department of Defense, we still didn't have enough stuff. And we couldn't get anywhere fast enough. I mean, this is a storm that hits from Miami, goes out south of Tampa, and hits Pensacola. So we had three major areas of populations impacted. Uh, and as we were going through this conversation, I kept thinking, what about the people that live there? And it was like, well, they're the victims. You know, we got to show up and save them. I'm like, I'm not sure they need so much saving as they're going to need help, but they're not waiting. And I asked this question. I said, what about the 6 million people in South Florida? What are they doing right now? And and it was this mentality that, well, they're, they're the victims. And I'm like, no, they're not. They're survivors. The victims are the ones that are dead, will mourn, and will bury. Everybody else is a survivor, and they're not waiting on you. So what? how do we change this conversation to empowering them and recognizing they're going to be doing stuff whether we give them permission or not and look at them as part of the team. And the only way we got there was we had to run disasters that were credible, but we were bigger than the system was designed to handle. And and you guys have been in disaster exercises. Have you ever noticed the scenario always fits the plan? Mm, Yeah. And that's the trap. We exercise to success. We reinforce what I call government centric problem solving and we leave out the big components. I think we do a better job of engaging the non-governmental organizations, the Red Cross and others in the disaster space, but we're still struggling in the states of really embracing the private sector and the resources and goods and services they provide as part of the team, but it's really looking at the public as part of the team and as a resource and somebody we don't need to be talking to, and this is the other thing is I, I find we talk to the public like a parent speaking to a child when it comes to preparedness. And then we can't understand why they didn't do what we told them to do. I'm like, your kids do what you tell them to do? <laughs> or do they question everything? And you need to figure out that talking at people isn't going to help, but having conversations and listening mm. goes a long way to building resilient populations. The Cajun Navy is one of those examples, I think, where, and I've just been amazed at, like, I think during Hurricane Harvey, there were more people from the Cajun Navy helping and pulling people out of water than there were actual first responders or the traditional formal emergency services. And I I get the sense that as soon as these sort of groups start up and we kind of try and fit them into some sort of box and formalise and put them into a plan, and then these groups change and evolve and the plans don't suit them. So how how do we reach that point where the culture kind of shifts enough or we are open to flexible types of this volunteering, I guess you'd call it, or community mobilization or spontaneous volunteers. Are we ever going to get comfortable, do you think, with that concept? Or um, 
are we ever going to get comfortable with this kind of concept or is it just going to be the same thing where we, we have to try and formalise and put everything into a little box with a fence around it to try and minimise the damage or the, the perceived risk of these groups? My short answer is you got to embrace the chaos. Mm. But it goes against what government tries to do. I mean, if you think about inherent, and particularly in the emergency services, whether you're in law enforcement, fire, EMS, one of the first things you're taught when you show up on the scene is get the scene under control, take charge, right? Mm. So there's this, and, and again, government doesn't like chaos. It wants to bring process in. It wants to bring order in. It wants to make the event fit the plan. And so these groups that are spontaneous uh, are disrupt that system. Um, and, you know, the first thing I usually get is, well, we don't, you know, they're dangerous. They're not safe. They're not trained. They're going to do more harm than good. I'm like, well, let me, let me ask you a question. People can't be rescued because you don't have enough government resources. You're going to tell these people who spend their time on boats all the time that they can't go save their neighbors. Mm. You, you know, and again, the Cajun Navy, it, it's got a title now. But reality was in Katrina, it was the same thing. You got a lot of people that hunt and fish in Louisiana. They got boats. Uh, and once they realized that people were trapped, they took their boats down to where the water was, unloaded, went out, started getting people. And the things I heard was, well, they weren't certified. They didn't have enough life jackets. We weren't sure about their fuel containers. I'm like, you're worried about that and people are on their roofs and we're on like day five? Yeah. Uh, but it goes back to this idea that instead of trying to make it fit our system, how do we help them? And again, what, what they ended up doing was putting Coast Guard folks, and a lot of times it was the auxiliary to the Coast Guard at the boat ramps to do safety checks and make sure they had stuff. And if they didn't have life jackets, they brought in extra life jackets to put them on the boats. But rather than telling them don't help, mm. it was, hey, Let's do this safely. We got some, you know, we got life jackets. You need more life jackets. Make sure your fuel, everything got that. What's your communications? Because you're going to get out there. You're going to find something. How do you radio back? You know, what channels you're using? This is the one we're monitoring. And that seemed to, you know, really, I think, take advantage of the spontaneous nature of these volunteers that weren't going to, you're never going to know ahead of time. This FEMA does a course. And again, it was on my watch. So I get the blame for this. But think about it. Here's a title of a course FEMA created. It's called Managing Spontaneous Volunteers. As if you're going to make them fit the box. Yep. And I just go, embrace the chaos. Well, there's bad things going to happen. Bad things happen anyway. Mm. But if you're, if you're fortunate enough to have enough resources to tell them to stop doing something, it isn't that bad. Yeah, I kind of believe myself like that we, we can't manage spontaneous volunteers, but it's really about how do we mobilize the community, empower the community, um, touch like I guess those those key networking or I mean, reach out to those people who are the key leaders and, and how do we support them and understand what's important to the community. And it's really about them giving them the tools and the resources to get the job done faster and and help what, what matters to them most. Uh, and in a similar vein, I guess, that the private sector, I kind of the future of emergency management really being around co-delivery, not just from emergency management agencies but around the community about the private sector and they as a private sector supply things like fuel food transportation communication they have the knowledge and the industry knowledge to manage these supply chains and and make things happen and they, they're used to dealing with this sort of situation so in an ideal world craig what what would you see as the role of the private sector in disaster response and that longer-term recovery 
again, invite them in as part of your government team, because what you want to find out is where are the areas that they can manage and turn to the areas they can't. Uh, where are they down? What's their restoration time? Where are the gaps? Where are the situations they need from you? And what I found is, and this was true in the uh, hurricanes that Florida went through in 2004, uh, we were doing all of this relief operation supplies, sending in food, water, and all these things, and not really paying much attention to the private sector. Because up until that point, if the power was out, the grocery stores were closed. But by the end of 2004, the grocery stores had started bringing in generators. Uh, the big box hardware stores were bringing in satellite terminals and tents if their stores were destroyed, and they were reopening. And we found ourselves, uh, again in 2005, uh, almost in real time, competing with the private sector at what they did best. And after Hurricane Katrina, there was a lot of questions, well, should we just turn over all of these disaster relief to the private sector? And, they, the, you know, when you talk to the – and this is the United States – some of the big box retailers, like a Walmart, uh, their first question was, well, how much are you going to pay us to have excess capacity on the shelf? Mm-hmm. And that, that really was enlightening. And I said, well, maybe I should ask a different question. Instead of asking, what can Walmart do for me? What can I do for Walmart? Because if I can get, if your stores can get open, then that's one less distribution point I got to be focused on. I can now go to where you're not or where people can't get to you or they can't afford it. And it was uh, something that, again, I learned in Florida uh, through going through none of hurricanes and realizing that this government-centric box we had built was excluding the private sector. We only dealt with them when we saw them as one of the problems, like when the power was out. And we weren't necessarily leveraging what government could do to help them get open. And it turned out when you talk to a lot of these stores – uh, their big issues were all of the duplicate and overlapping curfews local government would have uh, because they do most of the logistics at night. And so getting deliveries and stuff at night were always a challenge. Uh, making sure the areas were safe. Uh, you know, a few stores open, they get big crowds. Their first concern is, you know, what's going to happen if a fight breaks out or something happens. And it turned out doing things like providing security, uh, law enforcement, or in the case of the states, even using uh, military forces like the National Guard and the command of the governor. Uh, getting roads open up, you know, debris clearance off of the uh, public roadway so that the trucks could get through. And so it, it really was something I think when I got to FEMA was how do we give the private sector a place at the table, both not during disasters, but before disasters, and, and build that team and focus on – because for them it was as much – for them to be in business, to be able to serve their customers and their, and their brands. Um, and again, it was like quit competing and move away from what I call this government centric problem solving and recognize that if you weren't doing it the day before the disaster and the private sector was, you're not going to be good at doing it the day after disaster. So quit trying to do all things for everybody and work with them and figure out where they can't get open or where they've got challenges that you can help. And get that system back up and running so you could focus on the areas that are without those services. And in some cases, that actually drives it to go to the areas that are usually the underserved areas that are the lower income, more vulnerable communities, because they're generally the ones that are last on these supply chains to get up and running. There's this really lovely um 
term you coined, and I know you get asked about it a lot, but I think it's it's a great illustration of how um, the private sector. Uh, in this situation, um, the waffle index, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's an, it, it shows how, uh, the private sector was used, used as a litmus test basically. And I know that you get asked about it almost every interview you do in the States, but for our viewers, uh, you know, in Australia, New Zealand, and Asia Pacific might not be aware of it, but can you take us through this, ter- this, this term you coined the waffle index and, and how you use that and how it was kind of your litmus test of using the private sector to basically understand how the community was recovering or what the issue was on the ground. All right. Let's set the stage. It's the waffle house index. Waffle House is an American diner that's located across the south. We find them along our major interstate highways at the interchanges. They were open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they rarely ever close for anything outside of a disaster. And the Waffle House Index was based upon, uh, again, going back to 04, uh, the 2004 hurricane season was, we were down range and uh, we were putting in 18-hour days. And if you got a hot breakfast, that may be the only meal you were certain of. And so, you know, five o'clock in the morning, we were rolling out of bed <clears throat> looking for a place to eat. <clears throat> and we were traveling up and down the interstates. We were down in South Florida for Hurricane Charlie. And uh, <clears throat> the first place we found that was open was a Waffle House. And so we went in and they didn't have uh, the usual menu. They have these nice, bright, laminated plastic menus with all the food on there. They gave us a piece of paper that was basically mimeograph. And they said, this is all we had. And, um, but we had coffee, uh, we had breakfast, it was hot, you know, and we went about our day. Um, and the next day we found another one that was open closer to where we were working, but it was the same deal. So uh, the guys I was working with, they coined this, and it turned out to be a, a pretty good indicator. We said, you know, if the Waffle House is open, it's got a full menu, that's cream. Not that bad, you may see damages, but by and large, if they're open and they have a full menu, it isn't that bad. If they're open and have a limited menu, that probably means we've had power outages. We may have water pressure issues. We may have boiled water orders because uh, they're only able to serve fresh stuff and they're not able to uh, do a lot of their other services because they can't wash dishes and stuff like that. And that's yellow. And if the Waffle House is closed because of the disaster, that's bad and that's red. And remember I said early on in the hurricanes, I said, I'm not waiting for somebody to say it's bad. I'm not waiting for somebody to ask. Well, when you're putting people on the road, and you're driving towards a hurricane, and, and you probably, if you've been up and seen any of the damage uh, from some of the tropical cyclones that have come in Australia, or even the subtropical ones that will come into New Zealand, you'll start seeing damage well before you get to the center of, of maximum impact. And so the question was, well, if you're driving out on the interstates and you're starting to see damage, is it time to go to work? And so the Waffle House uh, was a good indicator because there are almost every interchange along the major highways, there's a Waffle House. So if you got there and it was open green, tree limbs may be down. It's not that bad. Keep going. If you get there and they got a limited menu, you probably got more mass care issues. You've got utility infrastructure issues, but you're probably not in the area for the search and rescue teams to go to work. But if you get to the area where you turn off that interstate and the Waffle House is closed because of the disaster, you're in the thick of it. Go to work. Uh, and it was just a shorthand that kind of came back. Uh, but it's, it, the correlation is a Waffle House uh, in the United States, again, they, they don't close uh, except for evacuations or if they're not able to get open after a storm. And they have a very simple uh, mission, and that is to get open. And uh, anything that's going to get open in the aftermath of a disaster, the first things almost universally across the South will be a Waffle House. So, 
it was an indicator, but it's also based upon a corporate philosophy to do whatever it takes to get open safely and serve their customers. I love it. I love we, it. we had a, a cyclone in Western Australia just recently, and I was over in uh, in Geraldton a few weeks ago for that. And it was interesting. Like we don't have waffle houses over here, but I would be very thankful if we did because there was not a whole lot else open in some of those places. Just like big open stretches of the countryside, and I can see how that would really get that almost situational awareness on the ground and know what's going on. It'd be really helpful. I just want to shift gears a little bit now and talk about something that's probably uh, you know. A relevant topic to a lot of our listeners. We have a lot of our our um, our listeners, Craig, uh, probably working in government, local government, state governments, um, and we know that disasters are inherently uh, political. I think Hurricane Katrina is a is a great example of that. But for for you as a civil servant, how did you balance the the different political ideologies and and those competing priorities, which may have been in contrast to your own opinions? Particularly, I know, given your time at FEMA, um, the the power in the House and the Senate changed as as you were going through through your time there. How how did you manage that? How do you operate in those type of environments and? Do you have any key tips for others or younger players in the game that may be finding themselves in those environments today? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a definite um, challenge because you need to be seen as apolitical. That decisions you make, both thumbs up and thumbs down about decisions, need to be seen as the merits of the decision, not the political affiliation. Uh, a, a good rule of thumb at FEMA was I got yelled at by Republicans and Democrats uh, uniformly for saying no to their request for disaster declarations. Um, but it, it's something I learned a long time ago is you, you being a political isn't you don't understand politics and you don't pay attention. And sometimes you find yourself having to phrase things in ways that are acceptable uh, here in the States where everything's gotten so polarized. So I'll give you an example. President Obama put into our budgets funding for addressing the impacts of climate change. Yet this was a time when both the House and Senate were controlled by Republicans, and bringing up climate was a non-starter for a lot of these, uh, both senators and representatives. So uh, I started asking the same issue, but a little bit differently. I'm like, why is the taxpayer paying for uninsurable risk? Why is it the taxpayers paying for things over and over again? And I said, you can debate whether it's climate change or not, but I can show you the numbers. The tax federal taxpayers paying more and more of their of the share of disaster costs because we're seeing less and less insurance. And you got to ask yourself a question. If the private sector won't insure it at a reasonable rate, maybe we didn't build in the right place the right way. So wouldn't it make sense when we do rebuild to actually invest and making it a more resilient infrastructure so that the private sector would find it attractive to insure and we move that burden off the taxpayer. And it turned out that for a lot of that debate, what you heard was uh, one side talking about resiliency and another talking about climate impacts and adapting, and they were both saying the same thing uh, while avoiding the issue of what was driving climate and changes that had to be made on greenhouse gases. Yeah, I think Alan took us through this this uh, issue around climate change in that it's almost getting to the point where it's actually distracting us from the problem at hand. Yes, climate change is bad. Yes, climate change is happening. Yes, it's changing the world and the environment we now operate in as emergency managers. 
But if we concern ourselves and 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 constantly focus on that rather than actually looking at what are going to be the impacts from this, what do we actually need to prepare for? What do we what decisions do we need to make now? What considered decisions we need to make now so that we're not making decisions on the fly in five to ten years' time? So I think, yeah, that issue around yeah. how we actually drive that conversation. I mean, this was something that um, as we were going up to uh, New Jersey after Superstorm Sandy, the, you know, President Obama is chatting with me and he's going, you know, the, the debate about climate change is over. We need to start talking about climate adaptation. And the thing I, I like to tell people is climate change ends with a D. It's already changed. I mean, think about it. Both in New Zealand and Australia, how many record-setting events that are weather-driven have you seen in the last decade? Which means there's been no history of it since you've been recording meteorological data. And it's not, it used to be an infrequent event. But the Kiwis were telling me when I was over there that their cycle of disasters, yeah, everybody hears about the earthquakes. What people weren't hearing about were the floods and wildfires. And that cycle had actually increased to the point where they would normally have big breaks, or these would be like every couple of years. And they're going, we're going from one to the other and oscillating back and forth. And we're not seeing real breaks in the hazards. And so I think. For emergency managers, we first of all have to understand both our response systems and our infrastructure was built for a different time. And it is being, it's it's apparent, it's a painful process to adapt our systems to what we're now seeing is an increased tempo, increased severity. Uh, You know, you throw COVID in there and everything that, you know, in emergency management, we've been talking about infectious diseases, we were talking about pandemics. But it was in the abstract. And so when COVID hit, it was for real. And I think that's our space we're in right now is systems that were built for the past are not keeping up with the future. And we're in the we're in the race to adapt faster, both how we build and adapt our infrastructure, but also our systems of responding to and recovering from these disasters. And it's a hell of a lot easier if we're building and the and and this isn't about not growing. This is not yeah. uh, not developing, but it's a hell of a lot easier if we're building for the future risk in a way that's sustainable and builds resiliency in for the people that live there, so that we're not creating the haves and have-nots of climate impacts. It makes some some yeah hard reading. I think when look at when you look at this, I guess from a, a broad lens, and you can see that there's there's funding issues with some of the I guess insurance problems around those more vulnerable areas, funding the wealthier areas in the coast, and and just those challenges around how do we how do we manage these more challenging disasters that keep happening. So I'm wondering, like what what are the big challenges you see on the horizon for future emergency managers? What's the next generation of emergency managers going to face, and and what skills they might need to do that but do you think we need to revolutionize emergency management or is it more of a gradual shift we'll see over the years um, to eventually get to a place where we are having more resilient communities and we are having a, a better response to disasters I, I think the basics of emergency management are still there I mean essentially you know my elevator speech when people said what's emergency management I said essentially government's not built for disasters and emergency management is when the org chart of government or the org chart of the system isn't going to work, and you got to reform everything around what needs to be done. I don't see those things changing. But what I do think needs to change is complexity in our systems, this overall desire to make everything fit our plans, 
uh, to be government centric and problem solving will not scale. And so I think what we need to do is start with the really big problems, not the stuff we're used to or the things that fit our plan and go, how bad could something be? And use that to drive how we build our systems, that we exercise things to fail so we can find out what didn't work and we can adjust. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I do a thing, it's uh, seven deadly sins, but uh, two of the ones that I, I, I just see repeated over and over again is people plan for what they're capable of and they exercise to success. And their strategy is hope that it's never any worse. Yeah, I think uh, it's a really interesting notion. Uh, and um, one of the former uh, direct generals of Emergency Management Australia, Mark Croswell, actually used to have this term and I used to find it really really helpful when I framed my thinking around disasters, it was think of the unimaginable, you know, don't think of what's happened. Don't think of what's happened in the past. Think of the unimaginable. Yeah. Mark and I, when, uh, you know, I was the FEMA administrator while he was director general, you know, he was dealing with the the, the aftermath of the wildfires in Victoria. And he said, you know, the problem was that it it was off the scale Mm. and they couldn't see it because they couldn't imagine anything ever being that bad. But all the warning signs were there. Uh, you know, to a certain degree, people say 9-11 was a failure in imagination. There's a lot of intel there, but nobody – it had never happened. It wasn't conceivable. Mm. And so in the world of natural hazards, what I've done is – and I did this at FEMA – is I go to the science, in our case, to USGS. I said, what's the biggest earthquake we're going to have? Not what's happened and not where people think it's going to happen. I just yeah. want to know where's the worst one. It turned out they gave me one. It was called, it was called the Cascadia Subduction Zone that was off the coast of uh, Washington State, Oregon, and Northern California, and also a big chunk of British Columbia. And of all the earthquake risk in the United States, that's one of the worst ones. Okay, yeah. good. This is what we're going to plan against. And when we first started doing the planning with state and local governments, even the federal agencies, it was like, uh, this is too big. We can't handle this. Uh, you know, we, we need to scale this down to something that's more realistic. And I'm like, our job isn't the realistic business. That's the emergency number you call. Yeah. If it's realistic and expected, we build systems for that. Our job is for the stuff that may have low frequency but has high consequence. And we need to understand what we're going to do differently. And, and this is, I think, for emergency management, the hardest thing to get people to get their heads wrapped around is when do we need to do something different? Yep. When is the coping mechanisms that we have built not going to work? And I think that's the challenge for emergency managers is keeping ahead of that curve of recognizing the mismatch between what the plan is, what the capabilities are versus the event itself and make the adjustments early enough and know what kind of adjustments that can be made. But if all you're starting with is the government org chart, just rearranging that's not going to get you where you need to go. That's why the private sector and public have to be integral to that. And you can't surprise them and mm. go, hey, guess what? You're part of the team now. Let's go to work. <laughs> uh, you know, it's bad enough when we're emergency responders and we're meeting for the first time in that EOC. But imagine the shock to the public and the business community. And we say, oh, you're part of the team. We have expectations of you. You never told me what that expectation was. Oh, I, I love it. Um, 
and I, I, this notion of great thinkers, uh, Andrew and I are really passionate. Um, I guess one of the pod, one of the reasons we started this podcast was that people used to think of emergency management, um, you know, as as a, as a government centric. Um, you know, tool or a government centric um, space that people work in. But Andrew and I were like, you know, no, Qantas, Qantas have emergency managers, Um, you know, insurance companies have emergency managers. And the interesting thing is though, we don't normalize this sector or I think we often have a lot of people that just kind of stumble into this sector. I know Andrew and I, that, that was us. We stumbled in, we're both engineers by trade um, and we just happened to stumble in to this space. But I think the thing that engaged us, and I'm speaking for you, Andrew, as well here, um, was this idea of great thinkers. And, you know, that's what we got from engineering was, you know, thinking about problems, thinking about what's the worst case thing that could happen. How do you break that problem down? How do you think about this in different ways? How do you have blue sky thinking? This is what I want to finish on today. How did you end up where you ended up, Craig? What was for you the drivers to enter into this space? What was your journey, you know, from going from Florida, then into FEMA? What was your journey? Just so we can kind of help people understand what a journey for them might be like getting into emergency management. It may sound trite, but it really came down to answering my phone. Mm. I mean, my training, I was, I was trained as a, a paramedic and a firefighter, um, you know, pre-hospital life support. Uh, firefighting at the local level. That, that's, I thought that was going to be my career. And uh, at the county level, I got a phone call to uh, uh, what I'd be interested in coming downtown and working on updating the county's disaster plan. And that was in 1987. It was February. Uh, I never went back on the road. I, I eventually became the county uh, emergency manager and, and ran that program and built it up. In 1997, I got a call from the state of Florida from then director Joe Myers going, would you, would I be one to come up to Tallahassee and join the state? And, um, I'd been 10 years at the local level. It was time for a new challenge. I said, sure. And so I went to the state, uh, my boss left governor asked me to serve in that role again, called me up and I'm like, why is the governor calling? I, you know, generally that's not a good call. Said, what, what would be wrong? And it was like, he was offering me the job. And, and literally the same thing happened in the Obama administration. I didn't lobby or put in applications or do a whisper campaign. I got a call and uh, said, would you come interview with the new secretary of Homeland Security, Janet Napolitano? And I said, okay. Uh, and it was, it was, again, I answered my phone, but that may be the trite answer. But the reality was I was preparing myself my entire career for the next mm. step. I just didn't know what the next step was going to be. And I found the more I focused on honing my craft and understanding of that, the better the opportunities were when the phone did ring. So I tell people, you know, when the phone rings, answer it. It may be a wrong number or a solicitor, or it may be the next career opportunity. That's really interesting. Uh, for you then, in terms of your success, what do you think of those, for you, if you had to distill it down to three things, what do you think of those three skills or capabilities that have made you successful in your role? Um. I actually credit this to uh, my uh, training as a EMT and a paramedic. We're outcome based. You know, the whole goal with a patient was get them to the emergency room where they were viable. It was it was it was pretty much you know a, a very measurable outcome. Either you did or you didn't. And sometimes it was beyond your control, but that was your goal. And I learned to really disregard a lot of stuff to get to the key issues because in a trauma patient, the more time I'm at the scene, the less chances you have of surviving. Uh, so I need to speed things up. I need to sh- take shortcuts. I need to do the bare minimum to keep you alive and get moving because 
Speed is the most important thing in a trauma patient, getting you to the surgeon. Uh, you know, the, the, the story I got taught by one of my medical directors, the only thing that's going to save a trauma patient is hot lights and cold steel. You're just keeping them alive long enough for us to get in there and save them. So if you approach disasters in a similar way where it's outcome-based, there's an urgency there. Uh, speed gets you to stabilization. Doing everything uh, that people think and really getting through what is process versus what's going to really affect that outcome. And that kind of thinking. And then I would go to what you guys do as engineers. You look for the critical points of failure. You look for that. You, know, you never want to have a design system that has one point that if it fails, the whole thing goes down. And if that is the one point, you're going to make sure that it's got enough backup capability that it doesn't become that single point of failure. Um, and then the other thing is question everything. Always, always ask, what do we do differently? And most of the time, the answer is nothing. But it's interesting how even in our own profession, we get group things. You go to conferences, we hear presentations, and we're kind of like, well, that's the way it's always done. And I'm like going... So how much peer-reviewed uh, peer research do we have on why that decision is a good decision? Or is that one example of a lot of different examples that we've now taken as the only way to do it? Because I'm always coming back to the outcome. If what you're telling me won't get to that outcome, then I need to do something different. And, and that is, the, I think, for government employees, probably harder than people realize is getting them to recognize that the system isn't going to work and they need to do something different. Otherwise they keep trying to fix the system and can't understand why they can't change the outcome. It's this, this notion of questioning the system and conversations, I think is a really, a really viable one. And it was one that even our conversation with Alan Andrew came up. Um, uh, you know, Alan has done a lot in the research space, you know, one of the most cited um, researchers in disaster risk reduction. And we were saying to him, you know, you know, thanks for the research. We've used it in our masters. We've used it here. And he actually turned around to us and said, well, I hope you've also questioned it. I hope you've also interrogated it. And how do you think we could do things differently? Because, you know, I'm not the only, I'm not the only single answer. There's lots of people out there can think about things in different ways um, than what I can. So I, I, I love that. And I think a lot of people should take note of that uh, in their careers. So Craig, final question, what's next? What, what, what's next for Craig Fugate? What are you working on? What's, what's your future look like? You know, when I got out of FEMA, I, I now had breathing room to start looking at, um, all of my efforts that seem to be going into how do you respond bigger and faster, and that by itself is is limiting. Their disasters are getting faster. You know, they're occurring more frequently. Uh, they're getting bigger. They're more. There are more systems that are uh, being impacted in ways we've never seen before. There's more dependencies. So just improving the disaster response couldn't keep up. So I, I, I wanted to spend more time on going, how do we quit growing the disaster risk faster than our capability respond to it? So it's a lot of policy area. And then, um, so I, I work on flood policy. I work on disaster policy. You know, where we build and how we build our, our communities has one of the biggest determining factor on the impacts of natural hazards. We know that. Why are we not doing differently? How do you change that? Uh, and then another area that I've always been really focused on is, how we train and exercise our, our teams uh, and looking at, uh, again, I'm, I've, I've seen some of the stuff that it was done in Australia. I met some of the counterparts in New Zealand. We have very similar things here in the States. 
But think about it from the standpoint of our profession versus the military. Here in the United States, if you're in the military, they have things called the National Training Center. They have Red Flag. They have Top Gun, where they take people that are already trained, they're already in their profession, and they put them in exercises and scenarios that are as bad, if not worse, than what they'll face in combat to really get them ready and prepared for decision-making in very difficult, uh, and in their case, uh, consequences of, of, of failure are very high. We don't really have that in our profession. It is, you know, my joke is your first big disaster is your first big disaster. And I'm not sure we're really preparing people for uh, the types of things they're going to face the first time that EOC gets activated and it's a big event. It's not the reoccurring stuff you've always done. And you guys have seen it. You know, folks, that day to day they are walking uh, emergency managers. They know their stuff. But in that first big disaster, they fail. And other people who you wouldn't have thought would have been that person thrives in that environment. And I think we need to get past this idea that it's the luck of a draw. I think we need to do a better job of preparing people how to operate in a crisis with everything that goes wrong in a way that doesn't reinforce success at the exclusiveness of building the resiliency to deal with the, with the defeats that are going to occur when things go wrong. Because this is, I think, the other part that I've seen is we're not real good at encouraging emergency managers to fail fast and move forward and get hung up on something and lose the objective of changing that outcome and getting yelled at, getting criticized in the press and, and letting that take over. Um, and all that stuff's going to happen anyway. It's like I used to tell people at FEMA, you know, if we do a good job and, and stuff, we're going to have a hearing. If we do a bad job and stuff, we're going to have a hearing. Uh, the difference is, I probably got fired in the last one. The first one, I may still have a job, uh, but there's going to be hearings. Uh, and, and again, we don't do a good job of that ability to operate in that crisis event and prepare them for that so that the first time they deal with it, they've seen it before. They've been put in that situation and preferably a safe situation where we can exercise and allow them to fail, learn, and build their own resiliency so when that first big crisis happens, they're part of the solution. They don't become part of the problem. Oh, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And we could talk all day, but Craig, unfortunately, we're out of time. So thanks so much. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And we've learned a lot from the discussion uh, and heard your, heard your insights into disasters and the future of disaster management, which has been really fascinating. And for our listeners, they can head along to memyselfdisaster.com to see a few photos we've put up there from your career and time working as the head of FEMA. Craig Fugate, thanks for joining us on Me, Myself and Disaster. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for on the show today. Join us again next time as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com. Learn more about disasters and follow our blog at disasterbros.com.